Well then, with a view to uh, God's help, let's uh, turn to the first passage that we read. That's Exodus 13. And in verse 21, just at the very end of the chapter, in verse 21, we read that the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now I noted this pillar of cloud and fire with you last week and said I would uh, return to it once we had looked at the crossing of the Red Sea. And the fact is, and it's a very striking fact, that from the very moment they left their homes on the night of the Passover, as the people of God leaving together in orderly ranks, from that very moment uh, on the Passover night, the people of God were guided by this very unusual phenomenon. It's called a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And we're told at the end of the chapter that God did not take it away from before the people. And remarkably that was true throughout their whole 40 year sojourn in the wilderness. They did not lose the guidance of this pillar of cloud and fire until they didn't need it anymore. When they crossed the promised, the river Jordan into the promised land, the land that flowed with milk and honey. And of course, as we read there, a thousand years after the Exodus, Nehemiah looks back in amazement, really, that in spite of all their rebellion and their provocations and their failures, twice he refers to the fact that the pillar of cloud did not leave them by day and the pillar of fire by night. Of course, once the tabernacle was built there in the wilderness, just a few weeks after this, really, the pillar of cloud and fire took up residence in the tabernacle. Every time they camped and erected the tabernacle, the cloud moved into the tabernacle and dwelt between the cherubims. It dwelt there. The Hebrew word for that is Shekinah, and the name for the glorious Shekinah. And when the cloud moved and went above the tabernacle and the people, it was time to take down the tabernacle and again to go on their journey. So wherever they stopped, God stayed with them. And whenever they moved, God moved with them. He was their guide on the journey. Now I think your first task in looking at the pillar of cloud and fire is just to appreciate the phenomenon itself as a phenomenon. Just what was it or what did it look like? And I think we should begin with its shape. It's called a pillar. The Hebrew word means just something standing upright, a column or a pillar. But as you read the Bible carefully, it's very clear that it was more 
than that, as well as being something upright that ascended up into heaven, it's quite clear that the lower part of it was diffused amongst the people. Diffusing like a cloud that was, in a sense, over the whole of the procession of God's people as they made their journey. For example, Psalm 105, which I meant to sing really and for some reason overlooked it. Psalm 105 and verse 39 tells us that the Lord spread his cloud over them as a covering by the day and a fire to shine by night. Now that's a very interesting expression because clearly there the cloud is not simply a column or a pillar that rises heavenward, but it also comes back the way and effectively covers the people, providing obviously some kind of protection. So he spread his cloud as a covering over them. And uh, Paul makes the same kind of reference in the New Testament. He tells us that when Israel went through the Red Sea, between the waters, he tells us that they were under the cloud, which again carries the idea of the crowd. The cloud spread all over the people of Israel as they journeyed through the Red Sea. So the cloud was something that was over the people and clearly in front of them just rose up higher as a kind of column into heaven. So that's the shape of the cloud. As to its appearance, um, more particularly, it's worth drawing attention to the fact that it's more in appearance than a cloud. It's also a fire. Now, there's no doubt that on first reading you get the idea that there are two pillars, a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. But again, as you read on through the Bible, it becomes very plain that it's just one pillar that sometimes looks like a cloud and sometimes looks like a fire. If you just go forward to the next chapter, for example, in chapter 14 and in verse 24, the single nature of the pillar comes before us very plainly. And this, you'll remember, is a reference to when the pillar of cloud and fire moved in a special way to come in between camp of Israel and the Egyptian army. In verse 24 we read that it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud. Not two but one. And he troubled the army of the Egyptians. There are other references too to a single pillar of cloud and fire. So clearly what you have is a, a kind of luminous cloud. It's got a core of fire, but that's covered externally by a, a cloud. And by day it's the cloud that dominates, although you can tell it's an unusual cloud because of its brightness. And at night it's the fire that dominates. It comes clearly through the cloud, just like a, a luminous jacket or something when you're warm. Uh, if you see it through the day, it's quite ordinary. But as you come to it through the night, it's just shining brightly in front of you there. It's the same garment, exactly the same appearance, but it changes day and night. Well, so does this cloud. By day, it's cloudy, but by night, 
the fire shines through it. Now that's its shape and its appearance, but of course the real question is what exactly is it? What is it? And here again the Bible is clear. The Word of God tells us very specifically that it is a symbol of the presence of God itself. In other words, it, it is an external symbol of the spiritual presence of God with the people. At this time in their history, perhaps they needed that. Maybe we would like it too. It's not important to have it. I'll come to that later. But for the moment, there is, and God grants it, an external manifestation of his real and spiritual presence with his own people. We're told on several occasions in the scripture that God was in the pillar of fire and that God spoke from the pillar of cloud and fire. God was in it. It's the same expression that's used of God being in the burning bush. Exactly the same expression in the Hebrew, the same way of writing it. And God, of course, spoke from the burning bush to Moses. It was his presence that burned in that bush. He was the fire. Well, so here, God's presence is in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And he speaks from it. We read that just a second ago in Exodus 14, that God looked at the Egyptian army in anger from the pillar of cloud and fire. And of course we sang too in Psalm 99 how when Moses or Aaron or even Samuel much later on would come near to God in the tabernacle that God would speak to them from the cloud. It is the presence of God. God conveying that presence in a visible form. Now I suppose maybe in one way I don't need to say it, but maybe in another way I do. God's presence can mean different things. There's, first of all, the presence that we refer to as his omnipresence. That just means that God is everywhere. There is no place where God is not. And in that sense, of course, God is no more present in one place than he is in another. No more present in heaven than he is in hell. No more present in one country than he is in another. Because he is everywhere. Everywhere. But when the Bible speaks usually of God's presence, it's not a reference to that omnipresence. It's a reference to what we could call his special presence. That's when he dwells with his people collectively and in them individually. He indwells them corporately as churches. He indwells them individually in their own hearts. No churches can lose God's presence. The Confession of Faith reminds us very starkly, if you read it, that sometimes a true church of God can so degenerate as to become, quote, a synagogue of Satan. That's um, it's a very profound thought. Um, the church of Sardis was, in the book of Revelation, on the verge of becoming that. Just on the verge of becoming it, losing the presence of God altogether. That can happen to churches. They can be true one day, but false the next. Some churches think that because God is, or has been present with them, that he's always going to be present with them. There's no guarantee of that. No individual congregation has that guarantee. 
No denomination has that guarantee. It's nowhere given in the scriptures at all. God may remove the candlestick from its place, as he threatened Ephesus and as Sardis was near to. Of course, with the Christian individual, that's not the case. Once a person is born again and the Spirit of God takes up his residence in the heart, so that God's special covenantal presence is in you as an individual, you cannot actually lose that. The Christian cannot lose the presence of God's Spirit. And although individual congregations and individual denominations may lose it, God's corporate people, his true corporate people, will never lose that presence either, because they never lose it individually. He will always be with the assemblies of his people, where they meet in spirit and in truth in his name, and he will always stay in the hearts of those who are born again. So his omnipresence and his special presence. Without overcomplicating it, can I mention too what the scripture uh, describes really as his felt presence. Felt presence. That is when um, we are aware of God with us and in us. Sometimes God removes that felt presence, although not his actual special presence. That explains why a Christian, perhaps in a backslidden condition, for whatever reason, may lose a sense of the presence of God, but it still remains within, because that is God's child and will remain God's child. But a felt presence, you remember, is related to his special presence. Sometimes that special presence is felt, sometimes it is not. When we don't feel it, we wonder if we have it. But it will always remain, the seed of God will always remain in his own people. So the pillar of cloud and fire here represents the special presence that God grants to his own people in this world, corporately and indeed individually. Now, if the cloud is God's presence from the beginning of a pilgrimage journey to the end, if it takes us from the sacrificed lamb and its blood all the way to the Jordan and to the promised land, it must be representing the Lord Jesus Christ, who is, of course, the good shepherd of his sheep, the one who calls his sheep uh, brings them into his own flock and leads them into the pasture land finally of their heavenly home in glory. After all, he's the one who said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And through the Old Testament, especially a couple of times in Isaiah, there's a reference to Christ as the angel of God's presence. The angel with a capital A, not an ordinary angel, but the angel of God's presence who was with the church in the wilderness, saving them and delivering them. So this pillar of cloud and fire really represents Christ with his people. The Christ who is the head of the church, and the saviour of the church, the nurturer and nourisher of the church, always with his people. Now you'll notice that, and I'm just really still laying a bit of groundwork here before we, before we look a little more closely at it, because if we, if we get these basic parameters in our heads, we'll understand a little better 
what's being said later on. You'll notice as God's work of redemption goes on in the Bible, the presence of God moves from being something external to becoming more and more internal in the life of the church. In fact, that is so much the case that today, in the age of the Spirit, in the age of the New Testament, there is no external manifestation of God's leading at all. It is all completely internalised through the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me put it this way to you. The journey of salvation begins with the clear cloud, the pillar of cloud and fire. Of course, once they settle in the promised land, the cloud takes up residence in the Holy of Holies. It stays there until the Lord Jesus Christ comes, in whom the glory of God dwells. That is now God present with his people, as God incarnate moves in the land. That is the presence of God. But when he leaves, he tells the people not to despair or to be downcast, because he will send another comforter, who will bring the presence of God into the hearts of his people with such richness and fullness that they will need no tabernacle. They'll need no temple. They'll need no external manifestation of his presence. In fact, he says, it is even better that I leave you. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, you will do greater works than you have done till now. He will bring my presence closer to you than I have been even in this world. And your joy will be full. So the Holy Spirit brings the presence of Christ, the cloud and the fire, from out of there and into here. Our leader and our guide resides now within. And that is the greatest guide of all. I'm sure, of course, you would say, uh, various points, well, I would prefer the guidance in the form of the pillar of cloud and fire. How wonderful it would be to be absolutely sure of God's presence with me and sure of that guidance, just seeing him and following him. That, that would be better. And the Lord says, no, it is not better. What I give you in your heart is greater than that. The Holy Spirit within. How it's greater, we'll see just in a moment. Of course, the next question is, why does his presence make itself known as a fire and a cloud. Well, let's take first the cloud. The word for cloud in Hebrew is related to the word for secret or mystery. Because, of course, God often surrounds himself with cloud. That reminds us that he is mysterious in himself, that no man by searching can find out the Almighty, but also that he is mysterious in all his works and he's mysterious in his guidance too. We are not always understanding what this God does, where he leads us or why he leads us. And we have to respect that, that he has shrouded himself with cloud. There's a mystery in God's guidance. But he is also fire. And all the way throughout Scripture, the fire represents the holiness of God, his justice, 
his purity, his spotlessness, his sinlessness. And again, not only is he himself holy, spotless, sinless, but blazing and burning in his purity, but he is also leading his people towards holiness and purity too. So if we take all that together, we can say that the cloud, the pillar of cloud and fire, represents the presence of God in his church, which is in Christ Jesus, and which is now internalized in our experience by the Holy Spirit who indwells our heart as cloud and as fire, mystery and holiness. Now then, if we're ready to ask what the cloud does. And the cloud has a twofold function. First, it guides the people. And second, it protects them. First of all, when you read, you're liable to think that it only guides. But as you read more carefully, so the cloud protects. Now, first of all, the pillar of cloud and fire guided the people. Where? Well, of course, to the promised land, to their heavenly home, the land that flowed with milk and honey, which was, of course, to them and to us too, a type of heaven itself. It guided them home. It guided them home to their destination. And how did it guide them? Well, in two ways. By teaching the word and by showing them where to go. This cloud took them to Sinai, where it appeared in remarkable glory above the mountain. God communicated then his laws in detail to the people, and he gave a commandment to build a place of worship known as the tabernacle. That tabernacle, as we'll see later on, was an enormous visual aid of the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. So that every aspect of their communal worship from that point onwards centred around a, a visual image of the Lord Jesus Christ. The glory would sometimes appear above the tabernacle, but they always knew it was inside the Holy of Holies between the cherubim. So God's concern in leading the people was to lead them into his word and to lead them by his word, and to shine a light on the path that they took with the help of the word until they finally arrived in the promised land. Now the same is true for us. The Holy Spirit in your heart is taking you home to heaven. Uh, the Holy Spirit has come down from glory to get a hold of you and to bring you up to glory. He's taking you home. He's your guide and your helper. And not only is he taking you home, he's guiding you there through the particular way that he's appointed for you to walk on. So how does the Spirit do that? Well, let's first of all say that there's an ethical dimension to his leading. He teaches us how to live. He leads us into holiness. In fact, that's the primary thing that he wants to do. To make us like his son. To make us like himself again. 
Paul tells us in Romans 8 that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now, when I quote a text like that, or when I think of a text like that myself, I'm liable to think of leading in terms of general guidance. Guidance. As many as are led generally by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. But really in that passage, the leading that the Apostle is speaking about is a particular leading. It's a leading into holiness. The, the whole passage is talking about ceasing from the works of the flesh and doing the works of the Spirit. It's all about dying to self. It's about no longer being under the dominion of sin and under its power, but rather living unto righteousness and being obedient to God. It's in that connection that he says, as many as are led like that by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. It's all to do with holiness and to do with being like our Saviour. That's where the Holy Spirit desires to lead us and that's where he will lead us if we're Christians. Because as the Bible tells us, without holiness no man shall see the Lord. And therefore the Holy Spirit shines his light on the word of God as you pick it up. Now without the Holy Spirit it just remains an enigma. An enigma. <coughs> it doesn't make sense. You can, as Christians, you can remember, most of you, unless you became Christians at a very, very young age by the Spirit of God, you can remember a time when the Word of God was, was not really communicating to you at all. It was dark, no light. But one of the signs of the Holy Spirit beginning a work in the heart of anybody is that the understanding is open. You begin to see. It just begins to make sense. It starts to piece together. And of course, as you see it, it becomes a wonderful thing too. Now, of course, in one respect, the Word of God itself is so outguided, it's so light and it's so woo. But the fact of the matter is that in itself it can't be that. It can only be that once the fire comes to reside in your heart, to give light on your way and light on your path. And so what the Holy Spirit does is he illuminates the word of God for you to understand what God wants you to do, the way in which God wants you to live, which is far more important than anything else. I mean, like I said a minute ago, when we talk about guidance, very often we say things like, well, what job does God want me to do who does God want me to marry? Or uh, what should I do tomorrow? Where should I live? Or does God want me to buy this or to sell that? Does God want me to move location or whatever? It's very, very practical questions like that, which I'll come to again in a second. But these things are very secondary. Important as they are, they are definitely secondary. The primary leading that the Spirit of God is interested in in your life is leading you into the Word of God so that you become like the Lord Jesus Christ. That you learn to put off the old man, the lying or the deceit or the corrupt communication that comes out of your mouth, maybe the drugs or the drunkenness, the cheating, the anger, the malice, the resentment. He's interested in washing all that away and leading you as David said, in paths of righteousness. He makes me to walk in the paths of righteousness. That's what he's leading you into. 
These are the paths that lead to the promised land. These are the paths that lead to heaven, not the others. As Paul says to the Corinthians, and he has a reason to remind them that idolaters don't enter, liars will not inherit the kingdom of God, fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. We needn't think that if we indulge the works of the flesh, we will get to heaven. We will not. So he leads his people in the paths of holiness. And that's why the Lord's people have an ongoing prayer that God would do exactly that. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Again, you know, you think of guidance there in the other sense. Like, what do you want me to do? Well, listen to what he's actually praying for. Show me thy ways, O Lord, thy paths, O teach thou me. Do thou lead me in thy truth. Therein my teacher be. He wants to know the word of God. And these are the constant petitions. That psalm that we sang earlier on, Psalm 119, I often mention to people, I mentioned a few times in my own congregation that the minister I had growing up, uh, Reverend James Morrison, he, he, rem- he memorized this psalm from beginning to end. And I suppose all psalms are for memorization, but this is very long, of course. It's an extraordinarily long psalm. But it's written in an interesting way in the Hebrew because it's got 22 sections in it. Every section begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In fact, it begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. First sections, A, Aleph, second sections, B or B. Now that's not just to make pretty poetry. That's to help people remember the psalm. So if you were a child reciting this psalm, you see, you always knew what the second one and away you go. Remember how people used to answer the shorter catechism sometimes, you know, when they were children, you know, they'd be asked by the teacher, well, uh, any question, like say, what is sanctification? And sometimes the child would say, can you give me a start? Of course, when they got the start, off they went. Well, that's the way that this worked, you see. The first letter gave the start. A reminder that the people of God loved the word of God so much that they wanted it in their hearts and hidden in their hearts. And this psalm should never be far from us, really, because it emphasizes the importance of the word of God. Make me to understand your precepts. Teach me your statutes. These kind of petitions just appear all the time. Teach me your statutes and I shall keep them to the end. Give me understanding and I shall keep your law. That's the guidance he wants. Right on through the psalm, your testimonies are wonderful, my soul keeps them with care. The entrance of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I opened my mouth and longed for your commandments. He wants to be led into the word of God. So that's the first thing that the, that our guide does, is he guides us into the word of God and into the path of holiness because it's the path of holiness that leads to the promised land. As Israel discovered, the hard way. Holiness is not easily acquired sometimes. It just depends how stubborn we are. But there's a practical dimension to this leading too. The Holy Spirit in you doesn't just shed a light on the Word of God which leads you to holiness. 
It also sheds its light on the practical path that God has appointed for you to take because, like I said earlier, we have our individual lives to live. We have our choices to make and so on. So there's a practical dimension to this guidance. Now, when I say that, um, the practical dimension impinges on the ethical duties because all God's commandments need application. Uh, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, or um, thou shalt not bear false witness. They all need application. And so when you ask the Spirit of God to open up the Word of God for you, to know what to do, you also ask for application. You say, well, how, how do I live that now? How, how do I apply that to my life right now? For example, if, if you're a girl and for some reason you conceive a child, there's an application to thou shalt not kill you carry that child. That's mysterious and dark and difficult. You have to trust the one who is cloudy and fiery that, that he will lead you and guide you, but you know that you keep the child. That's just one example of personal application of all God's commandments. But when I mean a practical dimension here, what I mean is that just life is full of choices. Like I said, they relate to things like a place to live a work to do, who to marry, and so on and so on. The spirit that's in you will shine a light on that path too. Not just on the word that is your great guide, but on the actual path on which God has appointed you to walk. Now some people forget that or they even discard that, but you mustn't. You must ask God for guidance in these day-to-day things. And he will guide you. And you must trust that guidance. Of course it's not as clear to you as a pillar of cloud and fire. But you must trust that guidance. Because the meek in judgment he will guide and make his path to know. That's the requirement. A humbling of yourself before God. An openness to doing what God wants you to do. And God will guide you. He will guide you to do exactly what he wants you to do. I will instruct thee and thee teach in the way that thou shalt go. Trust that guidance and that leading. So the Spirit of God guides us by shining a light on his word and on the path that we're taking. Of course, you must be diligent to follow this cloud. When it gets up, move when it rests, rest. Wherever it goes, follow it. And you know, there's an amazing passage uh, in Numbers 19, which tells us that at every step of their journey, Israel actually followed the cloud. Now, I think it's in Numbers 9, it's astonishingly repetitive. It's almost difficult to read as a passage because it keeps saying the same thing. You can, you can read the chapter yourself. It's the latter part of Numbers 9. It keeps telling us the same thing, that when God moved, they moved. When God stopped, they stopped. It says it again. When God moved, they moved. When God stopped, they stopped. Why is it so often repeated? Well, because of its importance. But also there's this stark fact that irrespective of what happened, the terrible disasters and difficulties and the, the trials and the provocations and whatever, the stark fact remains that at no point are we told that Israel did not follow the cloud. At no point 
Did they not follow the cloud? In fact, you can switch that round, as we should switch it round, and say that at every point God actually ensured that they followed him. And that they did not lose sight of his own presence. It stayed with them, in spite of all that, until they got home. Now that is a wonderful thing. Because it does remind us that at the end of the day, it's God who takes us home. And God does make sure that all these provocations and failings and whatever they were do not come in between us and himself. He never, Nehemiah is astonished at it himself, and he looks back and he says, you never removed the cloud by day or the fire by night until you took them home. Just like this cloudy fire in our hearts will never cease to burn and to shine on the word of God and illuminating our path until we make it home. Guidance. The second function of the cloud is to give protection. You spread your cloud over them as a covering by day. Now someone once said that you don't appreciate a cloud until you're in a hot, uh, desert, cloudless sky. Uh, once, once you're there, you really appreciate a cloud. And of course Israel, where, uh, not just in a wilderness, but in a desert. Sometimes the word wilderness means much less than desert, but they were absolutely in desert for a considerable part of their journey through the wilderness. And there, the Lord spread a covering over them. That was protection from the heat and the thirst, which right throughout Scripture functions, both function as a picture of the trials and tribulations that come the Christian's way. He spread a cloud over them as a covering. Not just that, but you'll remember that he fought for them from the midst of the cloud. It was from the cloud that he looked on to the Egyptians and judged them, while at the same time he looked with favour on his own people. You remember it was this cloud that said, let's not go the way of the Philistines, but let's move south to the Red Sea. Yes, that took them into temptation and trial, but it didn't take them into the trial that would have destroyed them or sent them back to Egypt. So the, this this cloud is not just guiding the way. There's a protection in that guidance, keeping us from evil and keeping us from the, from the heat, the heat of the day, which makes so many people lose heart and become discouraged. Now, the people of God, friends, are a kept and protected people. And you who are a Christian, you know that today, that you are specially kept and protected. Sometimes God puts the fear of himself into your enemies. He does that. You expect hardship and grief, and lo and behold, something has come even through yourself to them. Just the kind of influence that came from Israel when they were in the promised land and walking according to God's commandments, God had a special protection on them. They sometimes lost that uh, to a degree when they were disobedient. But God did that. The Spirit of God when the devil is attacking you, leads you to the word, to the promises of the word, and the consolations of the word. And, and these are spread over you like a covering, and the, and the devil is not able to get through it. His arrows are 
not able to reach you. With the sword of the Spirit, you're able to fight with the Word of God, and so on, there is a protection upon you. And let me say that this guidance and this protection is cloudy and fiery. It's cloudy and fiery because... It's fiery because, remember, the purpose. Every place he takes you, whatever place it is, his purpose is holiness. Never forget that. His purpose is always holiness. But it's so mysterious. Why on earth does he take them to Mara, where the waters are bitter? Why does he do that? Well, I hope we'll see shortly. But why does he take them to the wilderness of Zin? Not Sin. Uh, but Zin, strictly speaking, a place where there's no bread. Why does he take them there? Why does he? Why does the pillar of cloud and fire go to Rafidim, where there's no water at all to be found, bitter or otherwise? We can understand why he leads them to Elam, where there were uh, seventy palm trees and twelve wells of water. But he doesn't just lead to Elam; he leads to Mara. And when he takes us to places like that, we do wonder why. Why are we here? Well, there's a purpose. And the purpose has to do with holiness. It has to do with getting us ready to be in the promised land. But it's a cloudy affair. It's a cloudy affair. But we've got to trust the one who is a pillar of cloud and fire. Yes, we <coughs> Even long before we die, this pillar can lead us into the valley of the shadow of death. I mean, some people think of the valley of the shadow of death as, as being death itself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not just death itself. Not at all. The, the, the Hebrew carries the idea of wherever death casts its shadow. Now, death can cast its shadow over you in many different ways and at many different times in your life. But whenever you pass through it, supposing it's the death of a loved one, not your own, but when you pass through it, Well, he's called you there, but he'll guide you through it with his rod and his staff. Because that's what God does. He leads his people and he protects them. Um, In all these places where they sinned, they sinned at Mara, they sinned in Rephidim, they sinned in the wilderness of Zin, but he never removed his cloud He took away his felt presence sometimes, but never his presence from the Lord's people. That's a wonderful thing. Now, there's one more thing I want to say about this special presence of God. There's plenty that could be said about it, but I really want to stress one more thing, because the Bible says that there are two occasions to come on which there will be a fuller measure of this presence of God in his church of course I suppose we can say it happens periodically with revival but there are two occasions on which the presence of God will fill the church the first of these is in the latter day glory that is to come now some people don't really believe in this latter day glory but there's not much I can do about that other than to say that I do and I think the scripture clearly teaches it a time to come when the nations of the world will become the nations of the Christ. When the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Now Isaiah describes this latter day of millennial glory in a remarkable way. 
And I'd just like you to turn to it because it's, it's such a wonderful expression, really. If you turn to the prophecy of Isaiah and chapter 4 in the prophecy. Isaiah chapter 4, and you'll find that on page 1062. It's a very short chapter. 1062, Isaiah 4. And uh, in verse 2, it's speaking about a day when the Lord's branch shall be beautiful and glorious, fruit of the earth, excellent and appealing. Now, in these days, in verse 3, just read this for a moment. It shall come to pass that the one who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. So everyone in that city will be holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by a spirit of judgment and burning, then the Lord, now listen to this remarkable prophecy, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion. So that's the homes, that's the people's homes. He'll create above every home and above her assembly. So every church that gathers, what will he create? A cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, that's the glory of God's people, they shall all be uh, believers and shining in glory, but over all that glory there will be a canopy or a covering, a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from the heat, a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. Now that is just very simply, if you like, an Old Testament way of telling us that the presence of God will be so great in that day that it will be evident in every single household and in every single assembly of God's people. Now, like I said a minute ago, our revival, I suppose, can bring that because <clears throat> that's what the millennium is at the end of the day. The millennium is just a glorious worldwide revival when the power of God will be in evidence in households and in the assemblies. The, the presence of God is is just going to be seen and felt in a household. Maybe some of you have experienced that already. When the, when the life-changing power of God comes into a house, you can feel it sometimes. You can see it in the people. But there he dwells in cloud and fire over their homes and over their assemblies. Over all their glory there shall be a covering. But then, of course, the second time when this presence appears in fullness is with the final glory itself. When all believers are brought home to be with the Lord. <clears throat> That's a remarkable thing because when that happens, when you get home, the presence of God that has been gradually internalized suddenly becomes externalized again. Or, to be more strict about it, it is fully internalized and fully externalized. No longer with something like a pillar of cloud or fire, but actually with the physical 
permeating presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is by God's power actually everywhere in glory. The tabernacle of God, we're told then, shall be with men, and he will dwell with them. Now you'd say, oh well, but that's the same as it was in the Old Testament. No, it's not. That cloud was hidden in the most holy place. But we're told when he dwells with them in the new Jerusalem that they shall see his face. They shall be like him. And there'll be a light there. We're told that he gives light. The light of his own glory. We're told that the Lamb leads his people in heaven. He still leads them. But, but to what? What does he lead them to? They're already in the promised land. The Bible tells us that he will shepherd them. The lamb himself, it's a strange figure, the lamb will shepherd. Shepherd them where? They're home already. Well, we're told that he will shepherd them into the very depths of God himself. To the living fountains of waters. And when that happens, well, that's the whole thing fulfilled. It's complete. We've arrived home. And whoever has that hope in himself today, well, you're purifying yourself, just as God is pure. You want to be there. You want to see him. You want to see his face. You want to be like him. So you will lift up this word, and you will ask the Holy Spirit in your heart to show you what it means, and to apply it to your life, and make day-to-day choices, knowing that even when you faint and fail, I will never leave you, and neither will I forsake you. And isn't that a wonderful promise? And we already know and feel what it means. Let us pray. (coughs) O Lord, we have reason to Praise your name today that you remain with your people. (coughs) In spite of our frequent provocations and the greatness of our unbelief, how thankful we are to find in ourselves a hunger and a thirst still for righteousness and a longing to know the word and to see Christ himself in it. Lead us home, we pray, The journey is long and it is often difficult, but we ask that in your good grace and mercy you would keep us going and lead us on. We are thankful that we have a great shepherd who is the captain of our salvation. Let us keep our eyes, O Lord, upon you until we arrive home with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's just close by (coughs) singing in Psalm 23. Of course, the words that we know very well, which reminds us that our pillar of cloud and fire is our shepherd, of course, and our shepherd has come to dwell within. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie in pastures green. He leadeth me the quiet waters by. These are his provisions in the wilderness. The result is that he restores our soul and makes us to walk in paths of righteousness. That's where he always wants us to walk. 
for his own name's sake. It's a, it's his own integrity that's at stake in the salvation of his people. It's worth remembering that. Even as he takes us through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me, that's it, and thy rod and staff, they comfort me. They're not always comfortable, but they are comforting. My table thou hast furnished in presence of my foes, and my head thou dost with oil and oil, and my cup overflows. Goodness and mercy all my life shall surely follow me, and in God's house forevermore my dwelling place shall be. No wonder it's such a well loved psalm, and let it be a well sung psalm too when we sing it, the whole psalm to God's praise. <coughs>
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.